heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm, and we'll be talking today about the crisis of compassion through the COVID pandemic. What has happened to the doctor-patient relationship? What has happened in the mindset of physicians today with so many physicians, my own included, just abdicating their oath of Hippocrates and saying they're not going to treat COVID. What's happening behind the scenes that big medicine is participating in suppressing information on early treatment. And we want to talk about what you, the patient whose life is at stake, can do about it and some changes in your mindset and a shift in your attitude and help you be more proactive in taking care of your health. My guest today is Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and internal medicine specialist in Dallas, Texas, and a world leader in the treatment for COVID-19. A physician who has personally treated several hundred COVID patients and has consulted worldwide in the care of many hundreds more patients. For those of us on the front line treating COVID patients, Dr. McCullough has been an incredible resource in knowledge and expertise and compassion and helping all of us do a better job in taking care of our patients so that We weren't looking at just sitting back and doing nothing. He also testified before the Senate Oversight Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, and that was in November 2020. Welcome to the Voice of a Nation today, Dr. McCullough. Thank you so much for being with us again to talk about some of your experiences and observations, because you really are involved every day with physicians around the world and across the United States. Thank you. Dr. Vliet, thanks so much for having me. And our goal tonight is to really give the listener a window into into the minds of doctors and uh, other healthcare providers uh, in this terrible crisis that's hit uh, uh, America and the world. Well, I think that's critically important. And, And I'd like to also not only talk about the doctors and about the crisis of compassion, but about some of the rules that have been put in, for example, in hospitals and nursing homes where people are just, they are totally alone with no advocates. And talk about a little bit about that and the impact on families and the caregivers as well. And I'd also like us to explore what seems to be contributing to the public being so submissive 
and adhering to government guidelines that flip-flop and change and seem to make no sense. There are a lot of aspects of the whole psychological response to all of this among doctors and health systems and patients that I hope we can talk about. Well, if we can go back in time uh, to about a year ago or a little bit earlier than that, in February, we started to hear stories of cases arising in California, Washington state. Uh, there were uh, flights that came into New York and, and LA and Seattle. Uh, and in fact, the virus arrived uh, in, in our country. And myself, like some physicians, I honestly didn't know what to expect. I thought that this was something that was gonna blow over. Uh, many uh, go back and criticize government leaders uh, about being too cavalier about the uh, pandemic. But I have to say, I was equally as culpable. I, I honestly uh, didn't know what to think. It uh, looked to me like it was uh, overhyped in the media. But then we started hearing about uh, cases of patients who got very, very ill. Uh, at our medical center in Dallas, our very first case was a businessman in his 50s who uh, got off a plane from New York and landed at DFW airport, became very sick within a day or two, was hospitalized. And, and uh, to our shock, we possibly worse and die in about five days right in front of our very eyes. And uh, it was a real wake up call. But what happened in March for the first time, uh, doctors, nurses, other healthcare providers uh, had the realization that their own personal lives could be in jeopardy, that for the first time they themselves could die, that they could contract the virus. And so we saw all different types of behaviors. One of the first things that we saw in the hospital was a mad, mad scramble for personal protective devices and masks. And virtually every mask in March that anybody wore was raided out of a hospital. And so um, uh, there was uh, fights over masks, uh, lots of uh, vitriol going around about who needed the masks and how to get them. Uh, I'll never forget that at one point in time, I think I wore the same mask for about six weeks in a row and uh, because there simply were no masks to be obtained, it was impossible to uh, get them in the hospital. Many doctors, if they could, uh, they quickly found a way with the um, advent of telemedicine to basically shut down their clinics and offices and uh, start to do telemedicine uh, from home and not go into the office. And in academic medical centers, I can tell you the vast majority of faculty uh, basically didn't come into the hospital. And so uh, we had these big medical centers, which turns out we didn't have a very high number of cases of COVID-19. Outside of New York, the rest of the country was pretty quiet, but the entire country, uh, the medical complex shut down in March. And so the hospital parking lots were empty. And so we saw uh, revenue plummet. Uh, there, there was a canceling of surgical procedures. Uh, the surgeons basically sat around saying, you know, what do we do? Uh, and there was great fear. And there was a, a sense of teamwork. Uh, there were committees, task forces. Uh, people tried to organize in terms of research. And, and uh, there was initially, I think, a, a real sense of, come on, we need to find a solution uh, uh, to this virus. And then over time, I think what happened is there became a comfort level of, uh, of, of doing things over the computer, of uh, in fact, not ever uh, seeing patients. Uh, those on the inpatient services 
uh, started to get an understanding that in fact, they weren't gonna get sick. There were never any out major outbreaks among nurses or doctors at US hospitals, none. Uh, and, and in fact, there was a paper published in New York suggesting that very few patients with COVID actually ever got it from workers or vice versa. The only place where healthcare workers clearly uh, uh, passed the virus and spread the virus was nursing home workers. And there were cl uh, classic papers from Washington state where nursing home workers who, who typically would moonlight at two or three facilities literally just spread the virus uh, through these uh, senior homes and the residents of the nursing homes who don't leave uh, uh, were sitting ducks. They didn't stand a chance. And um, well, and in addition, the administrative staff or medical directors denied access to, in many cases, denied access to hydroxychloroquine because we were getting information in March from China, South Korea, and India. Because I remember reading the India Council of Medical Research Protocol in March 2020 that they were using hydroxychloroquine widely. And yet the nursing homes and many of the hospital administrators prevented the physicians from prescribing it? Well, it was an interesting time. Don't forget in March, the US created a stockpile of hydroxychloroquine, so did Australia. Uh, several countries did. I mean, there was an understanding early on that hydroxychloroquine reduced viral replication by about 90%. The Chinese had already worked with it. And everybody, in a sense, had an idea that it was the go-to drug. And the India a medical Research Council, in fact, put in their guidelines that the healthcare workers were to take hydroxychloroquine once a week prophylactically. Yes, I so, saw that. So that went on. And, and so early on in America, I think there was an incredible fear that set in. And then doctors started to realize initially in March, the party line was, listen, there's, there's no treatments, there's no ability for us to treat it. And so if a patient developed COVID, that in fact, if they got worse, they would just need to go to the hospital and check into the hospital. And don't forget the tests that were done at that time could take a week or two weeks to get back anyway. So patients were sick for a week or two weeks and suddenly the test result would come in and well, lo and behold, it's too late to do anything. Uh, patients would have to go to the hospital. And so there were papers written about patients who went to the hospital. What did they look like? Well, it turns out 75% of them did not need mechanical ventilation or oxygen or IVs. In fact, they were just scared. And the paramedics would pick them up and take them to the hospital. Many times uh, patients would get a ride from friends or family members or call Uber or taxi drivers. And so this um, uh, uh, panic to the hospital was a massive spread event. And so as patients were at home getting sicker and sicker, when they panicked and finally went to the hospital, they spread the virus massively to everybody involved. And you can imagine at, uh, in March in the big swell of patients in New York City, I think in a single day in New York, 1700 patients were admitted to the hospital with COVID-19. And it's estimated that 10 times that number of patients were discharged home and no masks were used. So you can imagine sick COVID patients who went to the ER, but not sick enough to be admitted going home and then spreading the virus massively in their um, condominium lobbies, their apartment buildings, the elevators. You can imagine how the spread happened in New yeah. York and Milan and all these vertical cities. And so that's what happened early on. And the physician mindset, I think was concerned, uh, but felt like they just couldn't help anyone. Uh, and then uh, there started to become some breakthroughs, uh, a, um, 
an innovator in New York City, um, Vladimir Zelenko, uh, started putting together combinations of nutraceuticals and drugs and finding out that COVID-19 could be uh, treated. And, and so it was very much a breakthrough, what's called the Zelenko uh, protocol. And so um, this started to, to gather some at attention. And uh, I uh, uh, looked at the situation. I was, in, I was in, sh in shock in March. I really didn't know what to do. In April, I started to get a sense of, you know, listen, I'm, I'm not an infectious disease doctor, but, you know, this doesn't look too hard. There's some drugs that can impair viral replication. There's inflammation. We use steroids for asthma and other inflammatory conditions. And then it looks like there's a blood clotting. The nephrologists were reporting that even the dialysis tubes were becoming clogged. In fact, they had to use double strength of blood thinners. So, I, so, and we use blood thinners in cardiology all the time for atrial fibrillation or blood clots. None of these drugs were hard. So um, by April or May, I started to get a sense of, uh, man, this is a treatable problem. The COVID's treatable. Now, when patients get in the hospital, uh, like so many conditions, by the time people go to the hospital, it can be too late, but it certainly looked treatable at home. And very few doctors were with me on this. Very few doctors. Doctors got into the point where, listen, I, I think we may be able to ride this out. And so when it became known in about May that the virus was going to be amenable to a vaccine, I think that's when we went off the rails. And the first studies that showed that uh, neutralizing antibodies could stop the virus from attacking cells and that we could produce such antibodies, then in the physician mindset, the mindset set in that, listen, I'm not going to treat it. I'm not going to take these personal risks. I'm not going to have my staff take these personal risks and no one's telling me to do it. And so I'm just going to wait for the vaccine. And so very quickly, any updates on treatment uh, were gone off of the media. Uh, by the summertime, we didn't even see any reports of innovations in the hospital. There was nothing. Uh, the physician mindset was, I'm not interested in treatment. The media wasn't showing it to the public. And if patients didn't demand it, the doctors, they didn't treat COVID and they didn't even care to hear about COVID. Uh, we didn't have any national meetings on COVID. We didn't have any national forums. There weren't any specialty presentations. Uh, the government uh, did not have a single doctor called to the White House task force, either under Trump or Biden so far, that had any experience in treating outpatient COVID. None. And there wasn't any interest in even asking such individuals. So the physician mindset uh, became one of uh, I, I, in general, I don't treat COVID and I don't care to know about it, which is really astounding. And so we started to get these panic calls from patients saying, I called my doctor and I'm sick with COVID. And the test result, the point of diagnosis was almost always the urgent care, which was the problem. So patients would go to an urgent care, they get handed a test result, and they'd be told to go home without any um, information without any advice, without any treatment. Uh, there was no research hotline, nothing. A patients who are reasonable, they call the primary care doctor. Say, listen, I just got diagnosed with COVID. What should I do? Answer, I don't treat COVID. Click. Um, in fact, some medical groups didn't even answer COVID calls. And I can tell you privately, uh, there was a physician assistant who I talked to 
who worked in a very, very large medical group. And she said, well, it came down from corporate that we weren't to take COVID calls, that we weren't to even answer these calls. So patients felt completely abandoned. The, the storyline was, there's no treatment for it. My doctor's not gonna help me. I'm just gonna have to ride it out at home. And if I get hospitalized, that could be the end. And in fact, when patients got hospitalized, it was the end. They uh, were put into isolation. The care in the hospital was very minimal. Uh, doctors didn't have to go into the room to do uh, physical exams. And, and so patients uh, basically got very little treatment in the hospital. They were in isolation for extraordinarily long periods of time. And it became known that these hospitalizations were gonna be covered by the government. So long lengths of stay equaled higher payment from the government. So we started to see length of stay in the hospital of you know, two weeks and then three weeks and four weeks, five weeks, you know, patients not on the ventilator. The question is what's going on at four weeks if they're not on the ventilator, they're just getting nasal uh, cannula oxygen. Can't we do that at home? Um, it, it seemed, everything seemed very odd about this. Uh, the hospitals just built more capacity, more capacity, more capacity. You never heard a hospital administrator get on TV and say, listen, I'm concerned about the hospitals being overrun. They, they, they never voiced any concern. They just took on more and more cases. And well, so and weren't they happy with the increase in occupancy and the revenues, which clearly were benefiting the large hospitals and the health system? Well, we anticipate it's going to be a windfall. We haven't seen this yet, but I imagine some of these executive bonuses are going to be through the roof because they've expanded, they've made so much capacity, and they handled the COVID admissions. To their credit, they did. Uh, the frontline workers in the hospital, to their credit, took care of these patients, but they were in isolation. Those who died, died in isolation. They never saw their loved ones again. The vast majority of deaths occurred in the hospital. The in-hospital mortality rates never improved. Uh, they were round about 25% for patients who were critical enough uh, to be in the ICU. And uh, uh, the physicians, a small band of physicians uh, took care of patients in the hospital. It was restricted, so it wasn't wide open in terms of private practitioners seeing their own patients. They all were on certain COVID services. Infectious disease doctors basically became the hospital rounders. So the infectious disease doctors re really didn't spend any time taking care of outpatients with COVID. And the physician mindset basically set in this way. And so most physicians to this day have a belief system that COVID can't be treated. In fact, they've never tried. There hasn't been any updates. There hasn't been any information in the media. And what we've had in terms of research has been uh, an unbelievably uh, weak and contrived attempt at clinical trials. And so uh, we have had millions upon millions of cases of COVID. The drugs that needed to be tested in combination were cheap. Uh, in cardiology, we have 20,000 patient trials. If we can do that in cardiology, we can clearly do this in COVID where we have so many more patients all at once who are clamoring for treatment. So we didn't have 20,000 patient trials. In fact, the best trial we've seen in COVID so far is with colchicine, the cold corona trial, and it was just slightly more than 4,000 patients, stopped early, should have gone to 6,000 patients. Studies of hydroxychloroquine in the clinical trials, some of the clinical trials in the meta-analysis have four patients, eight patients. The NIH started an outpatient hydroxychloroquine trial 
And pathetically, they stopped after 20 patients. Every single trial, yeah, every single trial, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, steroids, you name it. The trial was too small, underpowered, unblinded, stopped administratively early, no drug accountability, no auditing, physician assigned endpoints who were biased. If the physician was biased against the drug, they could just declare the patient needs more oxygen. We had an absolute bust on randomized trials, a bust. And so then the doctors who already developed the position, they don't want to uh, treat COVID. Now they were supported by quote, negative trials. And these doctors would bellow out, well, there's negative trials, this drug doesn't work. And I heard doctors at meetings basically declaring drugs didn't work even before there were clinical trials. Oh, I wouldn't do that, steroids don't work. Oh, I wouldn't do that. You know, nothing works, nothing works. Well, that starts to become a real short game of if nothing works, that means I don't have to do anything. And if I don't have to do anything, then I don't personally put myself at risk. And if I don't put myself at risk, then I feel more comfortable. And so this um, crisis of compassion became one that started out of fear and then it was fed into this sequence of events. uh, And now everything is leveraged towards this where physicians don't have an ounce of compassion for COVID-19 in general, not an ounce of compassion. I've seen that with patients of mine across the country telling me what they have encountered. Exactly the same mindset. And it brings to mind a, a quote from John Kenneth Galbraith many years ago when he said, when faced with a choice, between changing one's mind and proving there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. Sure. Well, now that's what I think. Now that doctors have dug in on this, now they feel like, you know, they can justify it with all these lousy clinical trials. And so doctors are split into two groups. There are groups, doctors who stepped out and said, listen, this is a treatable problem. Uh, we can treat this problem. We can use drugs in combination. This is a serious virus. We never thought a single drug was going to be a cure for COVID. So for, so for the person who says, oh, hydroxychloroquine didn't work. My answer is, did you think a single drug was going to cure this illness? It's a fatal virus. That never happens. Didn't happen in AIDS or hepatitis C or, or uh, any serious, even bacterial infections aren't treated with single drugs. So the bottom line is it was always going to be multi-drug. What we needed to do, what I did in my research and practice and what you did is we looked for signals of benefit in the data. We didn't demand large randomized trials. We knew they weren't coming. We looked for signals of benefit and then we used our clinical judgment in assembling regimens. And those regimens treated patients through the phases of illness. And what we know from the real world observational data is that 85% of the hospitalizations and deaths could have been avoided. Ooh, wait a minute. Now we've got a physician community that said they don't treat COVID, they're in fear, they're still in fear, and now they're incredibly threatened by a group of doctors who say they do treat COVID and here's the results. And so that real problem doctors are facing uh, who are treating patients, they've not only faced censorship, now they're starting to face their careers being on the line. They're, they're uh, having reprisal in their institutions and in their medical groups. For the first time, doctors are being told by other doctors what they can do. 
doctors will say, uh, oh, my medical director told me I can't treat COVID or I can't treat, and, and, and I'd ask, well, do they tell you you can treat diabetes? Do they tell you how to treat asthma or other conditions? You know, where, um, where did it come that COVID-19 is an illness where others can opine and infringe upon the doctor-patient relationship? That's, that's exactly the point. And I would like us to go into that in a little more depth after the break, because not only are other doctors who don't treat COVID patients themselves and haven't treated a single COVID patient, criticizing those of us who do and threatening us, but we're also seeing non-medical people, politicians, governors, bureaucrats, and the media making similar comments about there is no treatment or no, you have no, you don't have enough data. I, at this point, I don't think any amount of data is going to satisfy the naysayers and the, those who think we should do nothing, which I think is going back to the point that that's a direct violation of the oath of Hippocrates, which says that to the best of our ability and judgment, we serve the interest of our patient, not third parties, not the government, not governors, and not bureaucrats. So let's take a break and we'll pause for a moment and then we'll come back. We'll come back with Dr. McCollum. We'll talk more about these very points. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. But we are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. This is Dr. Lee for America, back with Voice of a Nation, standing in for Malcolm. 
and my guest is Dr. Peter McCullough. Tonight we've been talking about the crisis of compassion. What is happening in medicine that has so devastated the tradition of the physician-patient relationship? And Dr. McCullough was beginning to make some points on this before the break, so let's come back. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Go ahead with what you were getting ready to describe. Well, I had a conversation with one of my patients today who has heart disease. He's older. Uh, his wife is in the same situation. About 60 days ago, they uh, developed COVID. Now, I'm a specialist, and they have a primary care. They called the primary care doctor and asked the question, um, you know, we developed COVID. Uh, is there any treatment for COVID or what should we do? And the doctor said, well, you know, I, I don't treat COVID. And, uh, and the patient asked, well, why? Why don't you treat COVID? He said, well, because nothing works. And, um, and then the conversation ended. And I asked the patient, I said, well, um, I understand that. I mean, you know, some conditions, drugs don't work too well. I can think of like low back pain. I don't think drugs work too well for that as an example. There's a lot of conditions like that. I said, did your doctor give you and your wife a call in a couple of days and ask how you're doing? He goes, oh no, we never heard from him again. I said, wait a minute. You know, it's one thing to say doctors that they don't treat COVID because none of the drugs work, but it's another thing not to call back on a patient who's developed a potentially fatal illness and check on them. So this is not a problem of drugs don't work. This is a problem of compassion. Through this illness, through chronic fear, anxiety, and all the discord that we've had, uh, the circles of empathy are becoming uh, wider and wider and wider. And as a doctor is taking a, a phone call or doing a, a WebEx or telemedicine, they're getting very distant from their patients. And there's no follow-up calls being made. Uh, and I can tell you that is a fundamental problem. So people have asked me, well, what should doctors have done? I said, listen, there's no playbook for this. None of us uh, had any training on pandemic response. But I can, I've used the analogy like this. Uh, let's pretend in my neighborhood right now, there's an enemy army marching down the street. They have invaded my neighborhood and they are taking over. I can tell you, there's a few people on my block who are going to get out there with anything they have and they're going to fight the invaders. They're going to say, listen, you can't take over. We're going to, we're going to fight. We're going to fight the problem. There's going to be a lot of people stay in their house and say, you know what, let's close the shutters and let's lock the doors and let's try to get to the sidelines and stay out of this. Okay. And then there's going to be a few detractors. There's going to be a few people saying, listen, don't you dare go out there and try to fight them. You know, stay on the sidelines. Don't you, don't you step out here and, and, make a, and make a move and try to, you know, try to fight the invader. And that's what we have here with COVID. We have a few heroic doctors, Dr. Zlenko being the first, and then many others, yourself and myself joined. There is now an entire early treatment, um, uh, small hero army of doctors. They've organized uh, through the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, through telemedicine networks, uh, through the frontline um, uh, alliances, uh, through C19, uh, these groups organically formed and started sharing protocols, innovating, publishing their outcomes data. And of course, COVID was treated. And of course, these doctors are the modern day heroes. And you know, that's very parallel 
to the colonists who were fighting against the massive army of the British who were controlling their lives and usurping their freedom. It was a few heroic average people that said, no, we're going to do what we can. And I think with the tools we have, they had muskets against the cannon, for example. And, and I really think that that's a, a metaphor for what those of us on the front line in our way, doing the best we could with the tools we had, because we made a commitment that we were gonna do our best to help keep the patients we cared about from dying on our watch if there was something we could do to help them. And you made the point earlier, which I absolutely, I think is just such common sense. It's like we treat every viral illness in the first four or five days of symptoms, everyone we've known. And why this viral illness was, there was a new guideline to wait until people got sick at home until they were critically ill and only then try to save them is like waiting for stage four cancer, sending someone home after a cancer diagnosis and say, okay, we'll come back when you're stage four and then we'll see what we can do for you. And many of us felt like that made no sense. And it went against our oath and we cared enough to take the risk of doing something. And I see it very much like those who fought for liberty and freedom at the beginning of this country. I think there are a lot of parallels. Well, I, I tell you, history is replete with medical innovation coming from innovators, coming from the little people and having those people um, uh, under basically uh, sustain injury and reprisal. Uh, uh, today, I listened to a lecture about innovations in mechanical ventilation and the very first inventors and people who worked there, some of them lost their hospital privileges, their faculty positions, they were thought to be heretics. The very first angioplasty balloon uh, and experiments uh, done were literally laughed out of the convention center. And so innovation comes from the smallest, least expected places. Innovation never comes from the Ivy Tower academia. Innovation never comes from government agencies, never. And, and so uh, the idea that doctors now who have lost their compassion, who don't wanna treat COVID, in fact, they want continued uh, positioning to stay out of the COVID um, crisis, now, they uh, uh, basically say uh, the, the government guidelines say not to do this. So I'm supported by this. And in fact, many have said, I'm not gonna do anything until the government tells me to do so. Well, guidelines are the, are the lagging indicator. So for instance, I think I treated lowering cholesterol for many, many years before any guidelines said that we should lower cholesterol. Um, in fact, I can't think of a single guidelines uh, that told me for the first time to do something. Guidelines are a, a set of bare minimum standards to catch up the laggards to the leaders. Guidelines don't lead on illnesses. Now, last night on a call, we reviewed the Australian guidelines on COVID-19. It was statement after statement of what doctors should not do. So it would pick a drug. Doctors should not use this. Pick another drug. Doctors should not that. The guidelines didn't state what doctors should do. It was actually an absolute comedy. 
these guidelines were absolutely useless. The National Institutes of Health first set of guidelines, October 9th, 2020, will go down in history as the most nihilistic, uh, ill-conceived document of all time. And it had government officers on this. It had academicians, not a single one who treated an outpatient with COVID. And it said the following, in high-risk patients who develop COVID at home, do nothing. In fact, do nothing until the point where they are so uncomfortable that go in the hospital. And when they get to the hospital, still do nothing. The recommendations, strictly do nothing until they need oxygen. And then once they need oxygen, then we can start to give some treatments that had tremendous toxicities or problems like remdesivir and convalescent plasma, et cetera. What an unbelievably poor, terrible set of guidelines that we're gonna hang our heads in shame as a medical community that that was the best we could do for a fatal virus. People get the flu and we give them, you know, some Tamiflu at home. People get some sinusitis and we give them a Z-pack. They developed asthma. We give them some inhalers and steroids. But no, for fatal COVID-19, we do nothing, do absolutely nothing. Who can think like that? The group think that got into physician minds, the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, the White House task force, academic leaders. The other thing to look at is we have incredible academic institutions in the United States, the Mayo Clinic, Harvard, Johns Hopkins. We can go around the country. Show me a single innovation, a big time innovation from any of these institutions on the treatment of early COVID-19. Zero, zero. Our academic institutions are absent right now. They have massive faculties. They have huge ambulatory care clinics. They've done absolutely nothing. The innovators have been small independent physicians, private practitioners willing to take risks, willing to help their patients. The big academic medical centers it has been a complete abrogation of their responsibility to their communities. And again, medical historians are going to be incredibly unkind in the pandemic response. The physician mindset has been, I'm scared of COVID. I'm personally scared of COVID. I'm not going to treat it. I'll find a lot of reasons not to treat it. And now that the government's going to save us with a vaccine, I'm simply going to get on the vaccine bandwagon. And in record numbers, physicians themselves signed up to be participants in the vaccine trials. So the vaccine trials uniquely had radio advertising. They had large sample sizes. They were incredibly well-funded. Where was the radio advertising for hydroxychloroquine trials or favipiravir trials or ivermectin trials? None. In fact, only the vaccine got um, complete government support. Only the vaccine got complete support by uh, physicians and physicians enrolled. Uh, we just received the J&J uh, vaccine data in the last few days. Shockingly, 60% of patients in the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine trial had zero medical problems. Zero. How do you get a group that's so low risk that they have zero medical problems? We're talking no diabetes, no heart disease, no lung disease, absolutely nothing wrong with them. I mean, that is stunning. It is stunning. No wonder the rates of COVID-19 are less than 1%. No wonder the hospitalizations are a handful. So with all the vaccine trials, we don't have any evidence or any, we can't make an inference if the vaccines even reduce hospitalizations and death. We, we can't tell. They probably don't. So the vaccines, interestingly, of which have nearly 100% physician buy-in, they may prevent and reduce 
the, the head cold version of COVID-19. And the thing that everyone's worrying about being hospitalized or dying is completely uncertain. And so here we are today. I think the house of medicine is largely responsible for uh, 500,000 deaths, millions of unnecessary hospitalizations. And if doctors had the courage and the integrity and follow the Hippocratic Oath and had the compassion that they used to have a year ago, we wouldn't have this problem. Well, and what is so puzzling, it, there are two things that just absolutely, I, I find it's difficult to wrap my mind around. Number one is how can the very doctors who absolutely categorically say hydroxychloroquine, a safe, effective 65-year-old drug used in billions of doses around the world for 65 years in all age groups from children through elderly, including pregnant and nursing, pregnant women and nursing mothers. How can those very rigid mindsets then go 180 degrees the opposite direction and say that and, and I'm seeing it in, with doctors that treat my patients for other conditions, that the vaccine that is experimental, brand new technology we've never used before, had only two months of clinical data in the trial, excluded most of the major groups of people that make up an average primary care practice. How can those same doctors embrace unequivocally 100% a vaccine with so little data to support it. It's I think it's personal fear. Think about this. If the party line is hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, that means doctor who's in fear doesn't have to prescribe it. So they don't have to even engage with patients, not even over the phone. Remember the vaccine not given by a doctor. They can go to uh, a, a drugstore or a vaccine center, go get the vaccine and um, and see me, you know, a month or two later type thing. So this has been an incredible offloading of physician responsibility, provided physicians can say nothing works and that they don't treat COVID and get the vaccine. This has basically become the solution for any type of physician obligation to patients with COVID-19. It's, really, uh, it's really an atrocity uh, what's going on. And I had a call today with a leader from France, physician from France, who said before the COVID-19 crisis, hydroxychloroquine was over the counter because they had so many immigrants from Africa, they had to treat malaria and malaria prophylaxis going back and forth. And in January of 2020, the French government made hydroxychloroquine prescription from being over the counter and then quickly put restrictions on it so patients with COVID-19 couldn't be treated with hydroxychloroquine. In the United well, States- in Mexico too. Yeah, well remember in the United States, Hydroxychloroquine was just simply a generic drug widely used for rheumatoid arthritis and malaria. We used it all the time. And then what happened is in March, the FDA put an emergency use authorization on hydroxychloroquine. Keep in mind the EUA is for a new drug. It's not for an existing drug. Hydroxychloroquine was already improved. So the EUA was for the inpatient use of hydroxychloroquine. The EUA was an effective restriction on the use of hydroxychloroquine. And so yes. by July, the FDA then used that to say that, uh, no, you shouldn't use hydroxychloroquine in the hospital. In fact, we shouldn't use it at all for COVID-19. And so to this day, that FDA language that tells doctors not to use hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19 
is based on flawed inpatient, uh, very small randomized trials. Keep in mind, there's only five randomized trials on inpatient care with hydroxychloroquine, and there's only two that are double-blind placebo-controlled, and there's fewer than 750 patients in those trials. They're a complete bust. They're a complete bust. We need many thousands of patients in double-blind randomized trials with multiple drugs, never hydroxy alone, because we don't use hydroxy alone. Right. So, so we have a situation where we have, through a variety of mechanisms, impaired even the doctors who want to take care of patients are kept uh, from doing so through these um, various uh, mechanisms. And I think one of the reasons why doctors who want to treat COVID are kept from treating COVID is because it's going to, they're going to make their colleagues look very bad. And in fact, if COVID is treatable, now doctors who have denied care to patients, that's called failure to treat. And that's one of the major you know, criteria for medical malpractice. Well, so I think doctors, we're going to see more yeah. of those cases. Yeah, many doctors are deep into malpractice territory by not treating COVID, and I think they know it. So I think we're going to see the fights, the legal fights of the century are going to come up, the mass tort and the malpractice. And doc, if, doc, if a doctor can't look at him or herself in the mirror and say, listen, I did everything I could to take care of this patient. If they didn't believe a drug worked, they better have called in a couple of days and checked on the patient. But if it was, I didn't treat COVID, click, and that's it. Watch out. That's abandonment. Exactly and right it is. We, we, that medical malpractice includes patient abandonment in an emergency. And this is exactly what's been happening. And I think a lot of that has also been fueled by one man having too much power and control in guiding everything that has been done. And I'm speaking, of course, of Anthony Fauci, because, and he has changed his recommendations and he has deliberately, in my opinion, excluded information that he knew was done at the NIH and CDC in 2003, SARS-CoV-1 epidemic, when he knew that they had done the in vitro studies looking at the effects of hydroxychloroquine to block viral entry and block viral replication in cell cultures. And he has actually lied to the American public in pretending that there was no data to show hydroxychloroquine had antiviral effect. So, so that so guided the, the conversation and the policy as well. So there's errors of omission and commission. Um, I think the biggest errors in the pandemic response have been errors of, of omission. You know, there's four pillars of pandemic response, contagion control, wearing masks and social distancing, early treatment, then hospitalization and vaccination. Uh, it's pretty obvious that early treatment has not gotten the same attention as, let's say, vaccination. And what should have happened is we should have recognized that COVID is a medical problem and it needs medical treatment. And so we should have had, and to this day, we should have had weekly medical updates. There should be weekly media press briefings on advances in medical treatment of COVID. Patients should understand what these advances are and where they can access these medical treatments so they don't end up becoming hospitalized or dying. We have not, we don't have weekly updates. 
We don't have monthly updates. I can't think of in the last six months, a single update on medical treatment for COVID, either inpatient or outpatient. We have had EUA approved monoclonal antibodies to treat COVID. Where are they? How do patients access them? Where do doctors access them? Um, what's the update? How are they working to reduce hospitalizations? That was the great hope. No word of this. Isn't it strange? We have EUA approved monoclonal antibodies by Regeneron and Lilly, and we have three vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, and now J&J. Have we heard equal amounts of uh, presentations in the media on Lilly and Regeneron and Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J? No, it's as if the monoclonal antibodies never existed. So there's a game plan here to never mention treatment, to never talk about it, even the EUA approved high-tech products as if they don't exist. In fact, the data suggests they're, they're sitting on the shelves. Doctors aren't even using them. So I think the monoclonal antibodies are the best proof that the media and doctors don't want to give any window to treatment, even of the EUA uh, emergency use authorization products, no window. There, there can't be, the FDA can't claim they don't work because why would they have approved them through the EUA mechanism if they don't work? Well, that's a good point, but also keep in mind that what you have said, and I've said, and many others have said, that the vaccine doesn't help the person who is sick with COVID. The vaccine has to be given ahead of time. So we still need treatment. We still need to use the monoclonal antibodies and we still need to use the multi-drug sequence therapy that you've been promoting and have published in the American Journal of Medicine. We still need all of that. And we need to have the compassion of our leaders in medicine and government and public health to convey to the public that it's a two-pronged approach. You've got to, yes, you can develop immunity with vaccines. Yes, you can develop immunity with herd immunity naturally from having the illness and recovering, but you've also still got to have treatment because people are still getting sick. I mean, let's just apply some math. Um, let's take the vaccine data at face value. If uh, we vaccinated 30 million people and less than 1% of people develop COVID in a couple months, which they do in the clinical trials, that means that there's 30,000 patients in this vaccine group that in the last several months who could have developed COVID, that's 30,000, okay. And uh, of them, uh, there's a 90% reduction in COVID. So COVID has spared, uh, let's say uh, 29,000 individuals uh, having a head cold and take the data at face value that um, if way less than 1% of those even ended up in the hospital or died, that the vaccine at this point in time may have spared a handful of hospitalizations and deaths, probably less than 10. This entire vaccine program that's been nonstop on the media, nonstop, every minute uh, uh, on every news station, it's a race against time. Uh, the most recent thing is we're opening up the football stadiums and we need to mass vaccinate. Maybe it's saved fewer than 10 individuals. I'm telling you, we still have thousands of people being admitted to the hospital. We know that the, that the treatment of COVID-19 is needed. And of course, your point is well taken. Treatment of COVID-19 and vaccination are completely complementary. 
why would we grossly favor one over the other? Why is treatment getting zero attention in the, in the uh, medical literature, in medical meetings, uh, by the American Medical Association, all the medical societies, the media, zero, and why is the vaccine getting 99.9% of all the messaging? It comes back to the point of the crisis of compassion. People, the human face of COVID, the suffering, the families losing loved ones, people living in fear, people losing their businesses, their livelihoods, their, their lifestyle, their freedom, that whole human face of COVID has been lost in this massive, depersonalized focus on mass vaccination. Mass vaccination is certainly um, uh, depersonalized, that is uh, for sure. And the other thing that's, um, uh, I think, more dark is the fact that if it was intentional to not treat COVID, if there was intent through uh, the human mind, through the medical mind, medical societies, through government agencies, through various stakeholders, if there was an intent to not treat COVID in order to promote as many hospitalizations and death as possible and drive fear to an unbelievable level in the population, if that was done to prepare the population to accept mass vaccination, and this is the first mass vaccination of our lifetime, if this was all done as part of a plan, then I think we should have great concerns. We should really be thinking about that. Did the, did the end, the end goal of mass vaccinating everyone with a vaccine that we don't, is probably not durable, we're already ta talking about boosters and, and, and ongoing commitments to mass vaccination. Was that, was, does the end support the means of hundreds of thousands of avoidable lives lost and millions of avoidable hospitalization? Was it really worth it to get to mass vaccination? Well, I think if we talk to the families who've lost loved ones, absolutely not. And I think if we talk to the families who have lost their businesses, they've spent their whole life building, absolutely not. And I, I think it's a bigger picture because we've lost something as a society that may be irretrievable in the near term. This, this whole lack of compassion for the human being and, and we can see that in other dimensions as well, but especially through this COVID and the ends justify the means, I just find that chilling because that's not who America has been. It's not who we are. And it certainly is what we've become in the last approximately 12 months. Well, we have... A lot of work to do at the end. We need, we need a big post-mortem on this. Um, we have a lot of our medical colleagues that are gonna have to come to some self-appraisal and recognition for what they've done because it, it is starting to pile up in a mountain of shame, a mountain of shame that they don't treat COVID. They don't even try. They can't put clinical judgment together and come up with a treatment plan for a treatable problem. And then on top of that, they're gonna to try to block uh, 
and injure their colleagues for trying to compassionately help patients with a potentially fatal medical problem. Shame on them. There is a mountain of shame in the house of medicine. And people are going to ask, where was the Mayo Clinic? Where was Harvard? Where was Johns Hopkins? Were they just watching this problem? Or did they step in as great American institutions and show us the way and how to battle COVID-19? I'm not seeing much courage at all. And I'm clearly not seeing the academic productivity that we're used to from our great institutions. So whatever's happened has gotten into the mindset of so many individuals. I'll give you one last quick anecdote. I had a sick patient with COVID-19. And one of the drugs we used in sequence multidrug approach is ivermectin. So I prescribed ivermectin. The patient went to a local pharmacy to pick it up. And the patient said, the pharmacist wants to talk to you. I said, okay, put them on. Pharmacist said, um, uh, do you know that the National Institutes of Health Guidelines uh, say that you should not treat COVID-19 with ivermectin? And my, you know, my answer was, yeah, I know about this, but the guidelines also say that ultimately the, the decision is between the doctor and the patient. I bring him to page eight of the guidelines and made him read that paragraph. And then I thought to myself, is this pharmacist, does he also call doctors and read the guidelines about back pain and about diabetes? Does he call doctors and read them the guidelines on heart failure? What motivated this pharmacist to call me and pull the National Institutes of Health guidelines in an attempt to block a prescription of COVID-19? What caused him to motivate that pharmacist to do all that extra work? Something is in the minds of people that wanna hurt other people. That pharmacist wanted to hurt that patient. It was in his mind. So what's happened, Dr. Vliet, is, is this is much bigger than some pharmaceutical or vaccine conspiracy. This is much bigger than one person. The, the eyes of individuals have become clouded and their hearts have become hardened, and it's occurred all over. This cannot be a master plan. This can't be a conspiracy. Something has fundamentally happened to the human psyche in terms of compassion. It's not, it's not a lack of compassion. It's actually promotion of injury and death. And you know that that is a brilliant, eloquent, and poignant summary as we wrap up our show on the crisis of compassion. And next time we'll be talking more about not only the points we've made tonight, but also what you as the patient, the listener can do to protect your life, your family. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, signing off for today. This is your life, your health, your freedom at stake. Get involved, get loud, and don't be afraid to speak up for yourself, your family, and help make the world around you a better place. <laughs>